I love the um, Pali, but it's interesting to notice how hearing something that's very familiar, said in English, it hits a very different spot. Touching. And what I found it did for me was to bring quite a, a sense of kind of like responsibility that uh, this, this Dhamma, this, this teaching is not something um, that one shares uh, in a kind of frivolous, unsuitable way. It's something that one tries to communicate with a sense of respect and uh, sincerity. Just like um, when the request is made like that, a a real real feeling uh, for people's sincere interest and uh, a wishing to respect and to honour that. just something I, I notice. We had a question and answer session just before tea and there was there were a couple of questions that I didn't answer because the person who was asking them wasn't here. So I thought I'd begin just by um, saying a few words uh, in response to questions about intention and about impeccability and motivation. And when I was considering this, what arose in my mind was uh, Um, a response that the Buddha gave when he was asked to express his teaching, to give give his teaching in a nutshell. (laughs) Uh, And there are several formulations that he gave at different times of what his teaching was about. But one of them, which I often quote, particularly when I'm being questioned by uh, people who practice as Christians, is a uh, teaching that is extraordinarily similar to what Jesus used to say, which is... um, that basically his advice, his guidance was to people uh, was to uh, do good, uh, to refrain from doing evil and to purify the heart. In our practice very often uh, we're not very clear about our motivation and sometimes we don't even really know what's good and what's bad, what the right thing to do is. Uh, this can be, um, can cause considerable distress, you know, if we really are in a very difficult situation and we sincerely want to do the right thing. Um, just knowing what that, what that is. And I find that with, with these things, a good guideline is just the, the basic precepts, you know, which, whichever course of action um, accords most closely 
with just the basic precepts. You know, so if, if one particular cause of action is going to cause harm either to oneself or to others, is going to involve any kind of dishonesty, uh, cheating or not being completely straight in one's dealings with others, uh, is um, taking advantage of others uh, in a selfish way, is um, involving any kind of wrong speech um, or intoxication, any of these five basic guidelines that the Buddha gave, then um, I would generally avoid that particular course of action if there was another one uh, that was more in keeping with the precepts. Sometimes uh, part of our concern about getting it right is a fear of being blamed and not wanting to be criticized. Um, you know, if we do something that seems inappropriate, sometimes it's a desire for, for praise, you know, wanting to look good. You know, it's a sort of a subtle kind of um, ulterior motive. <laughs> and this can be quite paralyzing. Now, I've, uh, occasionally, you know, people come and they say they just don't know what to do and they're, they're, they're frightened that they might be doing something for the wrong motive. And years ago, I was very impressed by some, uh, a response that Ajahn Sumedho gave to a similar question, which was, well, if it's good, if it's not going to cause harm, then do it. <laughs> you know, don't hold back. If it's obviously not the right thing, if it's, it's something harmful, then, then just don't do it. Try and avoid doing it. This uh, purification of the heart is something that takes time. You know, because we don't always know, we're not always fully conscious, fully aware of our underlying motivation at any time. But rather than waiting until we're utterly pure and perfect before we do anything good, <laughs> it's better to, to go ahead and do it. And if there is some kind of um, uh, you know, something that's not quite straight about it, you know, some kind of ulterior motive, that usually becomes apparent sooner or later. You know, as we reflect on, on the result of our action, um, or, or other things can show us Someone was asking earlier about, you know, how you choose a teacher. And I was saying, well, you know, when we really reflect on our lives, on what we do, what we say, and the results of these things, we really begin to find that, that in fact, life is a very good teacher. As we develop more, more sensitivity uh, to what's going on in the mind, uh, to the way that we respond to the things that happen to us, with increasing honor, with, uh, with increasing honesty, with increasing integrity, uh, we begin to, to feel uh, when we've gone a little bit off in one direction or another. And this is what we mean by purifying the heart. 
just using every, every little bit of suffering, every little bit of uh, uncomfortableness as a result of, of things that happen to us as uh, an incentive to really look and see where there's some kind of selfishness in there, some kind of um, you know, desire for, for, for a particular kind of recognition or appreciation. We have to be uh, willing to get things wrong. <laughs> uh, it's not that we want to get things wrong, uh, but often that is the way that we really learn the lessons that life has to teach us. All of us have come into human existence because uh, we're not perfect. Or else we, we, we're, we, we've, um, we're following a bodhisattva path and we've decided to <laughs> come back quite consciously in order to help liberate others. Um, but most Theravadins don't follow the Bodhisattva path. <laughs> so the reason that most of us are here is because we still have some things to learn. And this particular lifetime that we have is an opportunity to learn those things. So although it's very understandable to want to get it right all the time, certainly understandable to want to avoid being blamed it's understandable to want you know, a feeling of recognition, of appreciation. These are understandable, uh, but they also um, indicate that there's still some remnant of, of ego, of self, in there, uh, waiting to give us a jab, waiting to cause us some kind of dukkha. So when we examine our life closely, when these things arise, this is actually an opportunity to, to learn about this ego, this sense of self. To learn about it, to forgive it, to understand it, and to, to let go of it. Doesn't mean get rid of it, but just to, to, to no longer invest that same incredible amount of energy and concern uh, into preserving it and to preserving its image. And as we practice in this way, um, our motivation is gradually, gradually changes, gradually shifts. As we let go more and more of um, our very natural human selfishness as we come to understand it and appreciate the, the suffering that it causes us and as we, as we gradually, little by little, free the heart uh, from this suffering, from this selfishness. What we begin to notice is the um, arising of other qualities. You know, our response to life is gradually transformed There are certain uh, qualities that some of you may be very uh, familiar with, or uh, either either through your own practice or familiar with the theory of it. Um, these qualities called the Brahma Viharas. 
the Brahma realms, like the, the, the Brahma god Sahampati, who first made the request for teaching uh, on behalf of all of us, uh, he, 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 was a, he was a Brahma deity. He, came, he, he, he lived in the Brahma, Brahma world. Like in, in Buddhism, we have many different kind of levels, different, different worlds. <laughs> and uh, the, the, hel- the hellish realms, the animal realms, the realms of the hungry ghosts, the human realms. And then there are various different kind of celestial realms, the realms of the, of the devas, the, the, the um, godlike celestial beings. And the, the Brahma realm is, uh, I think it's the highest disease. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, actually, it's from from this uh, Brahma word Brahma that like the Brahmacharya comes, like the the, um, the idea of uh, a state that is kind of above the the animal realm, above above the sort of grosser aspect of our human existence. So the, these Brahma gods, they don't actually have flesh and blood bodies or flesh and blood desires. Um, their, their aspiration, their, their longing is um, of a different order. But as human beings, we can certainly aspire uh, to the Brahma, uh, the Brahma Viharas, like the, 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 the Brahma abidings. And we can uh, certainly manifest these qualities in our lives. The human realm is actually a very, very fortunate realm to be born in because, as I've said, I think in one of the smaller groups, we have both the um, uh, suffering of an animal body, like I think in every group that I've met with so far, there's been at least one person who has mentioned just incredible amounts of physical pain and uh, just the suffering, the, the discomfort, the inconvenience of a body that is getting older. <laughs> so we have, we have these animal bodies that um, undergo uh, these various changes, uh, many of which are uncomfortable. And we can also experience enormous amounts of pleasure. But the, it's the pain, really, I think, that uh, encourages us to reflect on our human existence. So we have an animal body that can experience enormous amounts of pain and discomfort. And we also have the intelligence of the devas, um, whereas the devas, they don't have a physical body, so they don't actually have to experience this kind of pain. And uh, you can stay in a deva realm for eons without ever really um, having any reason to, to question your existence, to, to, to examine it. So, a slight sidetracker, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, the Brahma Viharas. <laughs> um, so these are, these are states that arise quite naturally as we, um, with this purification of the heart. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about each of them. The first one is metta, or loving kindness, or simply kindness, or the refusal to dwell in states of negativity and aversion about anything. <laughs> and this is uh, a quality that is um, held up very highly 
by the Buddha um, as something that uh, to be aspired to. Um, it's not, um, it's, it's actually quite a challenging uh, state to, men, uh, I mean, to maintain this uh, quality of, of kindliness, of acceptance um, as a continuous state throughout our lives is, is not easy because it's um, much of our lives is, is unpleasant. You know, uh, as human beings, we can expect to experience, you know, in a normal lifetime, we can expect to experience a certain amount of pleasure, you know, some quite e- extreme ecstatic moments. This is something we can um, expect to experience. We can expect to um, experience physical pleasure. We can expect to experience uh, the pleasure of, of happy mind states, of um, you know, we can enjoy this in our meditation. Uh, we can enjoy this in our daily life. You know, when we feel um, good, good about ourselves. When we feel uh, good about the people that we live with. We feel, you know, feelings of, of, of love and appreciation. Uh, we feel success. Uh, you know, these we can. Um, we can enjoy the feeling of, 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 of happiness, of um, well-being. Um, but as human beings, we can also expect to experience um, a certain amount of pain or displeasure, uh, unpleasantness arising. So physical pain um, just, uh, and discomfort that can just arise during a normal day. And then the uh, psychological pain, uh, unhappiness when we have to be with conditions that we don't find pleasant. We have to be around people that we don't like when uh, we fall out of love. (laughs) It's lovely being in love, but um, it's not actually something that we can expect to um, have as a permanent condition. Uh, this is something that they really ought to say to people before they get married. <laughs> talking about this, I think, on, on, on the journey here, about how you know, people just aren't, aren't really prepared for the, uh, uh, the ending of the, of, the, of the honeymoon or the ending of being in love. Uh, all these fairy tales about you know, people falling in love and living happily ever after. Or <laughs> and it's, it's not like that. So this metta, this quality of metta, you know, what do we, how, how do we um, develop this? How do we manifest this in our, in our lives as human beings? How do we make it more than just a lovely idea that we wish we could do? I found that the way that um, it seems to to deepen, that it seems to become uh, more a part of my life, is when um, 
I put more attention into allowing myself to feel, feeling loving kindness and metta for this one, when I'm able to actually um, forgive this one for not being perfect, forgive this one for having failings and faults and difficulties. Until we can really um, have a sense of kindliness for ourselves, our kindliness, our acceptance, our patience um, with other people is going to be fairly superficial, fairly limited. We'll be able to love them and accept them and appreciate them as long as they're being lovable and acceptable (laughs) and uh, fall in with something that we can appreciate. But when uh, they irritate us or they challenge us in some way, uh, it's much more difficult um, to find a, a sense of, of loving kindness or acceptance. You know, all, all of our metta can drain away in an instant when somebody pushes our buttons, <laughs> you know, when somebody triggers some kind of vulnerability or um, uh, yes, vulnerability, basically, in ourselves. So one of the things that I've found helpful is that um, when this happens, you know, when, when one does come across somebody who really irritates or upsets us, is to examine quite closely what it is within me that is being threatened or challenged. Inevitably, I find that actually what's happening is that the person is mirroring some kind of um, state that uh, I haven't fully accepted, I haven't fully acknowledged in myself, some kind of weakness, something that I'm very, very uh, um, concerned not to be. So I tend to be uh, quite shy, actually. Um, you know, I, I find um, you know certain relationships quite difficult because I'm quite timid, and uh, I used to find that people who were timid, or shy, or nervous, or diffident, I'd, I'd get really upset by them. <laughs> I had very little patience with them. And uh, I began to realize it was because I hadn't really, I had very little patience with my own timidity, with my own shyness. And uh, having really looked at that, having um, studied it carefully, I now find um, a much more easeful acceptance of um, others who are shy or timid. I could run through a, a very long list of <laughs> <laughs> these particular uh, exercises that I've um, come up against and been through in my practice, but I won't bore you with all of that. <laughs> but just to, to give a sense of the basic principle, you know, if you are finding a difficulty in accepting and forgiving and making space for some other being, then to just turn it round and have a look 
and try to find out what it is within yourself that you haven't fully accepted and come to terms with. Usually there's something. And what you'll find is that the more, or what I've found is that the more that I do this, the more willing I am to face up to um, what I perceive to be weaknesses or difficulties, um, the more, the, the kind of bigger my heart becomes in relation to others. So during this uh, time of retreat, I'm quite sure there have been you know, many times when uh, things have just seemed totally unacceptable, like some of the questions we've had uh, today, and just a sort of feeling of just not being able to accept this particular state. And, you know, with metta, it, it, I mean, it, it's generally, the, the traditional tra- translation is, is loving-kindness. Um, but sometimes that's actually asking too much. Sometimes the best we can do is actually just to refuse to tumble into a state of negativity or aversion. So just to try to cultivate this patience, this patient acceptance, this willingness to bear with the conditions that are presenting themselves at any one time. Sometimes I find it helpful just to to bring the idea of just taking an interest. Just being interested in this is a way, it's an opportunity to learn a little bit more about human existence. rather than just wanting to get rid of it as quickly as possible. <coughs> Compassion is the second of the Brahma-viharas, this lovely word karuna. And it's quite interesting with the Brahma-viharas, there is a, a commentary which talks about what we call the near enemy and the far enemy of um, each of the Brahma-viharas. And uh, with compassion, like I can notice that there's a kind of a uh, something that looks very like compassion, but that actually um, is not has, is, is quite limited. So there's a kind of compassion that can feel very sorry uh, for people who seem to be worse off than ourselves. Very sorry for them, and a kind of, a sort of feeling of, I'll, I'll come and help you, dear. <laughs> I'll come and make things all right for you, dear. I'll sort it out for you. And uh, so we, we, we go in to, to, to sort out the problem, and then if, if people, if the problem doesn't go away, <laughs> if people don't get better, and if people don't appreciate, if they're not grateful to us, we can notice something that is, um, we realize it's actually not a very nice feeling. <laughs> you, know, you know, why aren't they grateful? Why aren't they getting better? And we begin to see that, in fact, this, this compassion, what we call compassion, is actually very, it's, it's not actually like this um, boundless, immeasurable, limitless state that is uh, referred to when we talk about the Brahma-viharas. Like the English translation of the Brahma Vihara chant just talks about this boundless, immeasurable, wonderful, radiant quality 
that is not limited by any kind of selfishness or you know, looking for any particular result, uh, any kind of appreciation of our compassion. So this brings us to the question of what, 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 what do we mean by compassion? What is compassion? What is a real um, compassionate response uh, to the kind of situations that we, we might meet? You've probably heard many, or, or some of you will have heard many, many talks about this, and probably each teacher will have a, a slightly different way of describing it. Um, I can only talk from my own experience. <coughs> um, and what I've found uh, in my own practice is like that real compassion is like a, a willingness to be with somebody's suffering. So it's not me going to sort it out for them, it's just me saying, you know, I can, I can bear this with you. This doesn't imply necessarily going in with an idea of going to sort it out or uh, going to make things better or um, any preconceived notion of what's required. You know, often like if you come to a situation of need, you can sort of think, well, I'm going to do this, this and this, and this is what, this is what you need to do. But with, with real compassion, there's a sense of a willingness to be with it without having any idea of what one's going to do about it, other than to be with it. What I've found is that the willingness to do that, to be fully present, with another human being who's struggling, what I've found is that when there is that willingness to be fully present um, and not to know what to do, <laughs> that the, the, um, an appropriate response just arises. I use the reflection on taking refuge in Dhamma um, in regard to this. So when I, I trust the Dhamma much more than I trust my thinking mind. You know, I might have all kinds of good ideas about what to do and what to say, but when I'm actually in that situation, I can be aware of those good ideas, I can be aware of my mind saying, yes, and you can do this, this, and this, and if you say this, that'll be the right thing, and this will happen, and so on. But I don't trust that. I trust the stillness, the silence of this moment. So when I can really do that, then maybe I say something, maybe I do something, maybe I just sit quietly. But whatever happens, that feels like the right thing. It, I mean, it really feels like the right thing. Sometimes one is given an affirmation, you know, somebody says, you know, what you said was so helpful, you know, they might say it sometime later, uh, or you might have a sense that somebody who's maybe really in a state of turmoil just calms down, you know, there's a sense of calm, a sense of peacefulness. You know, infinite number of different responses. But, uh, as I said, I, I find that I can trust that much better than going in there with a sense of wanting to sort it all out and having all kinds of good ideas. So real compassion is actually um, a willingness to, to bear with 
and I think in fact that's even the, the, the um, if you break down the word like com usually means with and passion I suppose is to do with feeling it's actually being willing to bear with, to feel with um, another person's difficulty or suffering The times that I've been very sick and the community's chanted for me, uh, which is what we, we do for each other if somebody's ill. Uh, there was one time I was in quite extreme pain, a lot of pain, and uh, I knew that the community was chanting for me. And what I, what I experienced the next day was just an extraordinary um, peace. The pain was still there. Uh, still had a lot of healing to do, but there was this extraordinary sense of peace. And I realized that that was, uh, that was the most precious gift. That was what I really needed at that time. I mean, it would have been nice for the body to heal, but that was asking more than you know, nature could do in, in such a short time. But that sense of that deep sense of peace and ease, So when somebody's really struggling with some quite extreme life situation, whether like physical or emotional or even practical, um, I realize that actually that sense of peace, that sense of acceptance is the most precious thing. And uh, it's not necessarily about solving all the problems in a practical way. But just trusting in that um, is a way of bringing forth the resource that that person has within to deal with whatever suffering they're experiencing. We tend to think that suffering is bad news, that suffering is a terrible thing. But I think if it wasn't for suffering, nobody would be here. Actually, suffering can be a real door uh, to awakening if we have the resources, if we have the encouragement to use it in that way. So while, of course, we, you know, compassion is not about actually wishing that somebody's going to suffer. <laughs> it's not saying, I, I want you to suffer. But it's um, recognizing that, that, that um, it's part of a person's journey, that it's part of uh, something that they they can uh, that they need to learn that they can learn uh, if they have the right kind of resources the right kind of encouragement to as it were turn it to their advantage. A saying that I am always repeating is is something that I I saw on a poster years ago, a kind of cartoon. I can't actually remember what the cartoon was, but the caption was, "If life sends you lemons, make lemonade." So just learning how to transform our suffering into something very, very positive. So when uh, you know of somebody, you come across somebody or some situation where there's a lot of suffering, uh, uh, 
Just don't be too ready to make everything all right. Perhaps the thing that is most appropriate, most helpful, is just the willingness to, to bear with, to be there with the person, to be there in the situation, uh, and to allow the appropriate response to arise out of out of dhamma. You know, and as I said, it may be something you do or say. It may just be that quiet, uh, patient uh, acceptance of the situation that will allow the other person to have the insight that they need. Wanting things to be all right for another person actually puts a tremendous pressure on them. And some of you may have been in situations where you've been sick or in difficulty and you know, suddenly you realize that everybody is really worried about you and people say, I'm so worried about you. <laughs> and uh, it's actually quite unpleasant. It makes it quite, it, it's, it's quite confusing. Rather than just to have somebody there, completely there with you, which gives you the space to go through what you have to go through and to come through it a wiser, a stronger person. Mudita is the next Brahma-vihara. Mudita means uh, gladness or joy. Joy, like sympathetic joy. So like compassion is a response to somebody's difficulty, uh, mudita, sympathetic joy, is a response to somebody's good fortune. or somebody's beauty, somebody's success. And we'd think that was easy enough. (laughs) But uh, I think in our society, it's actually quite a rare quality. We're trained to compete. We're trained to see somebody being more successful than us as being um, uh, like a rival. Being, being, being kind of bad news for us. <laughs> you know, they're doing better than us, therefore either I have to try harder to get better than them, or I have to kind of pull them down in some way, get them down to my level, or... You know, sometimes it's very easy to kind of feel sorry for someone, but to feel glad when someone is succeeding, to feel glad when someone is really, like, developing in their practice, is actually quite... Um, well, it's a Brahma-vihara. It's, 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 it's a higher... It's a higher state, it's a higher quality. It implies the, the letting go of our own selfish interest. Um, and a real sense of, you know, isn't that really great? You know, she's doing so well, you know, I feel really pleased. And to be able to really say this with um, a real sense of gladness and joy. Rather than just sort of trying awfully hard <laughs> to look as though you're feeling that sweet smile and bright and positive where inwardly you don't actually feel that at all it can be quite painful this lack of mudita this jealousy, this envy and uh, you know, we know it's not right we know we shouldn't feel like this 
and as, as we develop our practice, this is something that becomes apparent to us. I think in the society, uh, we tend to cover up our feelings very often in this regard, and uh, there are ways of ignoring it. But you know, as we practice, we, 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 we can no longer ignore what's really going on. So how do we uh, develop mudita? How do we bring this forth? if it's not something that is arising naturally for us. Really, in order to uh, bring it forth, we have to, first of all, accept the fact that it's not what we're feeling. We have to, uh, and this can be really hard, Um, I was very fortunate in having a relationship with somebody who was extremely sensitive. And whenever I was uh, struggling with this envy or jealousy, you know, he would pick up on it straight away. He didn't usually, didn't usually know what it was, which actually was a good thing, because what he, what he would do was he would question me until I um, actually acknowledged what was going on. And it was extremely painful. I wasn't glad that he did it at the time. I'd, I'd, I'd do anything I could to avoid actually owning up to the fact that I was jealous, often jealous of him, um, because it's very, very painful to acknowledge that you feel that somebody is better than you. It's incredibly painful. But having been through that in that relationship, I'm actually very, very grateful because I I had to make this conscious. I had to really face up to my own what I perceived as my own inner poverty, my own inner lack and vulnerability. I think the more that we can do this, little by little, Uh, we gradually see that we're not so poor. We gradually begin to become aware of our strengths, we become aware of our blessings, we we become aware of the goodness of our own lives, and uh, we become, we develop mudita for ourselves. We begin to see that our practice, that through our practice we are growing, through our practice things are changing. And uh, the more that we can do this for ourselves, it quite naturally uh, spins off into into feeling it for others. There's a real feeling of happiness that people are doing well. It may not be a continuous state. We may just have little glimmers of it. Just just moments when when we experience it. But little by little, the more that we work on our own inner poverty, the more that we find that uh, there is a strength there, um, there is a beauty there, the more we learn to delight in our own goodness, we find that the natural arising of delight in the strength and good fortune of others. There was a time that we um, used to always have the monk's ordination ceremony at Chidhurst, there's a special ordination boundary that's been established and 
every summer there would be this wonderful ceremony where the new uh, monks would be accepted into the into the sangha, the, the sangha, the bhikkhu sangha, and uh, it was a very impressive ceremony, impressive in many ways. But I used to just always be very touched by the sense of of the ancientness of it and the um, real feeling that this is something that goes right back to the time of the Buddha and that these men were going forth into this order that was like had a direct link with the Buddha and the ceremony was also had um, there was a sense of continuity that this was a ceremony that went back to the time of the Buddha and uh, for some years I was really moved really touched by this and then there came a time when uh, I realized that I didn't actually have quite enough mudita. Because as a nun, we, 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 we would sit apart. We, 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 we couldn't, I, I realized that as a nun, I could never, ever, ever be a part of this. I could never do what they were doing. And uh, for a year or two, I, I deliberately just didn't, didn't go because I just didn't have enough mudita. <laughs> You know, I just I, I couldn't bring forth this feeling of gladness uh, for what uh, they were doing, for what for what was happening, because I, I realised that it, it was something I could never do. And then little by little, you know, having acknowledged uh, what seemed like uh, my own poverty, like as, as a you know, someone having a female body and uh, being a nun, little by little, I began to to look at what we had and what was evolving for us. And uh, to feel glad about that. And in, in fact, we have a very a very lovely ceremony of acceptance for women. And uh, to see actually the privilege of, of being in this position of um, kind of opening up this possibility for women. You know, I just sort of felt very very happy about that and so now there's no problem <laughs> and uh, so I, I very happily attend uh, the monks ordination ceremonies and feel a real feeling of gladness that these men have the opportunity to do what they're doing and I also feel a very strong sense of happiness that I'm a part of what I'm a part of. Uh, that's just an example of something that I've noticed in my own practice in regard to mudita. The final Brahma-vihara is Upeka, or equanimity. Uh, being able to uh, stay in the middle to keep a perspective uh, on the changing conditions of our lives. So not getting um, carried away by our successes, thinking I'm the most, I'm the greatest thing that ever was, and really believing it. (laughs) And equally not getting plunged into states of utter despair and misery when we fail. Just being able to recognize that success and failure are part of our human um, 
human life. That when we're successful, we can enjoy the success, but we don't get lost in it. When we fail, we can experience the the unhappiness, the discomfort, the unpleasantness, but we don't get lost in that either. We recognize that these are part of the ebb and flow of, of our human existence. So we have like what we call eight worldly winds of success and failure. Um, actually, I can never remember what they are. I think it's success and failure. Uh, praise and blame is a, a definite one. So, you know, when people praise us, we can, you know, we can uh, accept their praise graciously. We don't have to kind of get all bashful and uh, put ourselves down, we can actually just say, well, thank you, if someone pays us a compliment. And if they blame us, maybe to try to also cultivate it, the ability to say, well, thank you. You know, if they point something out that maybe we, we weren't aware of, uh, we can recognize that maybe we don't like blame and maybe we do like pr- pra- praise, uh, but we, we stay in the middle. We recognize that this is part of life. Happiness, suffering is another of the, another pair. So when we feel happy, when our practice seems to be going well, we can certainly enjoy that. But just not to expect it to always be like that. You know, there will be times that we'll, we'll suffer. So rather than feeling, you know, that this is absolutely terrible, we just feel, okay, this is part of life. Gain and loss, that's the other one. So, you know, if, if, if we're given a lot of things or get a lot of things, just to recognize that having, having uh, got these things, we, can, we, 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 we are vulnerable, we can lose them again. This equanimity is about um, avoiding... Um, falling into like a reaction, a reactivity, uh, finding an evenness in our practice. So when things are really difficult, rather than just reacting and struggling and fighting and blaming and finding some way of avoiding the situation, getting out of it, just because we can't stand it. Uh, Equanimity implies a much more uh, balanced response. You know, things are really difficult if we get ourselves into terrible trouble as a result of maybe having made a series of mistakes. With equanimity, we're able to actually calmly appraise the situation and take the appropriate steps to disentangle ourselves. An image that I, I find is quite helpful is like um, like at Chithurst, there are many brambles. Does that, do, you know, do you know the word bramble? Yeah, okay. I, sometimes I don't know the language here. <laughs> many, many brambles. And uh, you might be going through a walk in the forest and you come across some brambles and they're across the pathway and rather than kind of going a very long detour, you decide to try and make your way through these brambles. These robes tear very easily, and it's very easy to get caught on the brambles. So when you get caught, 
the equanimity practice is about just having the patience to just take the time to get very, very still and just unpick each one and then to move very carefully through. The automatic reaction is to kind of just be really impatient and to kind of stride through and to heck with my robes, to heck with my flesh. It doesn't matter if it gets torn. We make things a whole lot worse for ourselves because then we have to find some sticking plaster (laughs) or we have to find uh, a patch and it's a real headache to, to fix things up, to repair the damage that we've done through our reactivity. So equanimity allows us to just stay very still, to acknowledge that this, that we have landed up in this situation as a result of what has gone before. We don't have to blame ourselves, we don't have to blame anybody else. We're fully present. This is how it is right now. What is a skillful response to this? What do I need to do to um, bring myself into the middle, to, to, um, to transform the situation? So I'm aware that I've talked for quite a while about these. I could probably say an awful lot more. But I think uh, perhaps I'd like to end the talk there, offering these as thoughts for your reflection, consideration this evening. Uh, So that's it. (laughs) 